Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you had a great Christmas. Uh, assuming you're listening to this after, well, you must be listening to this after Christmas. It's going out after Christmas. I uh, hope you had a great time, a bit of running amidst the home cooking in beautiful kitchens around the world. Anyway, uh, today in this sort of strange period between Christmas and New Year, quite a likable period, really, where there's a sense of a lull amidst all the crises, although not much of a lull, really, given the scale of the crises. But anyway, uh, what we're going to do today, if it's okay with all of you, is explore... I really enjoyed last week exploring the term reform. Uh, If you haven't heard it, please tune into that uh, last week. It was our pre-Christmas special look at the term reform. Uh, And someone reminded me, I forgot to mention that uh, actually in the context of reform, there's actually a party calling itself reform. Uh, You know, it is the most ubiquitous and imprecise term. Anyway, this time we're going to look at the term trust, which is another ubiquitous term in British politics. You see on Vox Pops, you know, don't trust any of these bloody politicians, you know, and all this kind of thing. Trust politics in this sort of globalised era. Anyway, that was the task set uh, by Newcastle University uh, recently. They asked me to give a lecture on that theme. And uh, I recorded it. And uh, so here it is. It was a lecture made without notes. I, I love, I know it's deeply old-fashioned this but I love the lecture as a form actually I don't know what you all think about it um, and it's so sad people tell me that students don't bother going this is was for the Newcastle University alumni annual conference and it was packed with people from different generations quite young people people who had been there in the kind of I don't know late 60s and 70s so I, I, I instantly hadn't been there uh, but I did work in Newcastle, uh, for Radio Newcastle, uh, in uh, the late 80s. But anyway, uh, this was the talk. Now, just a warning, I refer to uh, a Q&A, and it was a great Q&A we had after the talk, on this rich theme of trust and politics. Um, but I'm not going to play you that because the questions didn't come out clearly on my mic. So you'll think, what the hell was that about? You know, um, but uh, hopefully you'll enjoy the talk. I'll be very interested to hear your thoughts in the coming weeks. Okay, this is it, and then I'll pop back again at the end. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming or watching uh, virtually, if you are, and defying train strikes and everything else. Um, if it's okay with you, I'll talk for a bit and then we can have a wider discussion on the very rich theme of trust in politics uh, within the context of a sort of globalised era that we are living through. And again, if it's all right with all of you, what I will do is just explore for a moment or two uh, what trust means in the context of politics because in ways I suspect some of you might disagree with me I think it is misapplied quite often and misunderstands the nature of politics as a vocation. So I will begin by trying to define the terms and then look at the way 
things have changed and broken down to some extent uh, since the sort of globalised economic era, most specifically rooting it in 2008 in the financial crash, which Gordon Brown, the then Prime Minister, described as the first big economic crisis of the global era, which did all sorts of weird things in relation to trust and politics. Um, But first of all, let me explore the term, because this isn't new. This sense of a breakdown of trust between voters and certain brands of politicians. It's always been around and quite often in ways that show a complete misunderstanding of the way politics works. Let me give you an example from what voters often say uh, when you speak to them about politicians. And they quite often say, you know, in these Vox Pops the BBC do uh, in Basildon or somewhere, you know, why don't they all just get together and sort things out is something you hear quite often. You know, these bastards just get together and sort the whole thing. Well, they wouldn't say bastards on the BBC News Bulletin, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Um, And that's a very common phrase. Why don't they all get together and sort things out? But if you think about it, if they were to all get together to sort things out, what would be the first thing to go? And the answer is trust. Because they all, in inverted commas, disagree with each other about what needs to be done. So if they all got together and pretended to agree, they would be uh, breaking with their own sense of belief and conviction for some sort of expedient project, which they would then have to lie about in terms of their commitment to it. So when voters say, I don't trust these bastards, why don't they all just get together? Um, That would actually be a breakdown in trust in politics. And then sometimes you hear the exact opposite from voters. You know, the problem with these people is they're all the same. Well, if that's the problem, why do they then want them to get together to be the same? (laughs) So in other words, uh, there is a confusion about what people really expect of politicians. And then you get, from the political side, a kind of distortion through language, which appears to be an engagement with voters, but is actually a sort of artful deception, but widely admired. We're going to come on to the populists later. I'm talking about mainstream politicians. The use of the term centre ground, is referred to with great reverence in uh, much of politics, but I think is a very imprecise term and in some ways a dishonest term. What is the centre ground? You can't, you know, Tony Blair is like, I'm on the centre ground, right? You know? Well, what is the centre ground? What does he mean by that? And sometimes in appearing to engage, you are actually establishing a greater distance with the voter through imprecision, actually. Uh, Other terms that become become very popular in mainstream politics, like modernisation. What does that mean, modernisation? And so just the dynamic 
of cliched terms that are very ubiquitous in politics actually are part of the problem when forming a relationship of trust between elected politicians and voters. And then there is the nature of politics itself. There are many interviewers, I hear them all the time, people like Adam Bolton, who used to present uh, Sky News, saying the problem with these politicians is they don't answer the question. How can you trust these people when they don't answer the question? And the answer as to why they don't answer the question candidly is because producers and presenters have spent two hours framing a question which, if they did answer candidly, the next statement from them would be, I therefore resign, because the question has been constructed to be a trap. And therefore, to avoid the trap, the politician evades, equivocates, and to use a favourite word banded around in America and Britain all the time now, uh, lies, Um, rather than answer the question directly. Now, is that an appalling example of building or of breaking down any hope of a bond of trust between voter and audience? No. It's what anyone has to do in any walk of life where you are working with others towards some complicated common goal. The university leadership here uh, cannot always be candid with the entire university as they move towards some, say, contentious objective. And that really is the same in politics. And yet this has been the source of a great sense of a breakdown in trust between voters and politicians. It is a complex vocation, politics, It's better than the alternative, which is to resolve disputes by war. That's the two we've got. But politics, in its attempt to resolve disputes, involves evasion, equivocation, ambiguity, and sometimes people pretending to believe things that they don't. It's just the reality. But if that's not accepted as the reality the breakdown in trust becomes really, really dangerous. And that's what has happened to some extent. One other thing about trust in this context is this. Let me present you with a couple of examples where trust becomes quite interesting. Keir Starmer, now 20 points ahead in the polls, uh, he is described all the time as boring, Um, but, you know, also a person of integrity, the former director of public prosecutions. Um, and, And yet here's something. When he stood for the leadership just two and a half years ago um, uh, and won, he made 10 pledges, most of which he's reneged on. Was he lying then? Is he lying now? Or was he being political and saying things to win in his party, and saying different things to win in the country. I pose the questions to highlight the complexity of trust and politics in any era, let alone the global one. Let me be counterintuitive again and say, do you remember Liz Truss? She was Prime Minister um, (laughs) for four weeks. Uh, You might have forgotten. Um, 
But arguably, what she did, if you regard trust as the criteria, uh, was trustworthy. She told uh, a leadership contest, which went on for about 25 years, um, that she was going to break with Treasury orthodoxy, that it had been a mess, the consensus over economic policy, that she believed growth was the issue, and she was going to cut taxes. And she did it. Now, the end result was total chaos and her own departure. But you could argue that here was an example of trust and trust, a phrase that has never been uh, uttered before, but actually shows again, I think, the complexity of trust and politics. So I'm going to reflect on the many consequences of this awkward dance between voters and politicians and the issue of trust and root it, as I said at the beginning, in the 2008 post-financial crash era. Um, But again, I make this qualification. It's not as if it's new. Sometimes with the rise of Trump, the rise of the right in extraordinary places like Sweden, Um, and the rise of the AFD in Germany, you know, a far-right party in uh, Germany with Brexit here and so on, and the rise of Johnson, that it is a new phenomenon, this issue where leaders are viewed with great scepticism as trust is broken down in this fractured, globalised era. It's always been around. To take pre-2008, you know, a few examples... I mean, the United States, they might be coping with Trump, but they had Watergate and the removal of a president um, who was involved in... They always say he was involved in the cover-up, and it's become a cliché that it's the cover-up and not the crime, but it was a pretty big crime to bug your opponents. Um, Blair and Iraq, that was pre the financial crash. Um, John Major, the issue that was at the top of voters' concerns about the major government was sleaze. In other words, they didn't trust him. And when you look back at that rosy, innocent era, uh, that government was major. Heseltine, Ken Clark, Douglas Hurd, all personifications of integrity compared with now, they fell because voters thought they were sleazy. They didn't trust them. And so it has been a constant... Uh, long before that, to quote Brown again, the first huge crisis of the globalised era. But there is no doubt that what happened in 2008 represented a major severance of trust with the mainstream. Because before the financial crash, there were a kind of set of assumptions and orthodoxies shared by enough voters for mainstream parties on the whole to be fairly confident that they would be re-elected on that so-called ill-defined centre ground. To give one obvious example, bankers were revered before 2008. They were the equivalent of... um, I don't know, church vicars in the 1950s or whatever. Um, And there's a very interesting example of this. When the new Labour government and Gordon Brown as Chancellor 
decided they would have to put up taxes to pay for the NHS. They were in a terrible state about it. They, they thought Britain couldn't cope with this. The press would destroy them. So Brown said, I know what we'll do. In order to protect us from this tax rise, I'm going to appoint a banker to review what is needed to pay for the NHS. And he appointed the then head of the NatWest Bank, Derek Wanless, to do a review and come up with the answer Gordon Brown wanted, that a tax rise was needed. And his statement, Brown's statement, to announce the tax rise is really revealing. He doesn't say, I think it's necessary. He says, Wanless thinks it's necessary. Wanless, Wanless. And because bankers were so revered, it was seen as this great protective shield. Voters trusted bankers. Politicians wanted to be photographed with bankers. And in 2008, the whole thing crashed. And all the assumptions held by these mainstream politicians and the voters that elected them were blown away. And voters, or some of them, began to wonder about the mainstream and the virtues of elected politicians. And ever since, there have been convulsions wherever you look. Um, In America, you can, I think, trace the rise of Trump to the crash of 2008. You can trace the rise of Brexit to that. And you can trace the rise of extraordinary things like the rise of Scottish, the Scottish National Party to the convulsions around that period. And what has happened, therefore, since then is really quite dangerous because there has been a rise of political figures who basically say this, that those who you elect are either useless or corrupt. And what we need is a whole load of new people, me, to come in. And this has led to a really strange phenomenon, dangerous phenomenon, which is underexplored, which is this, that to be wholly inexperienced in politics is a qualification for power. So Trump's pitch uh, in his first bid to be American president, he can't make it this time, uh, was that he had nothing to do with Washington. Um, he didn't know Washington, didn't, uh, never been to the White House. Um, I don't know anything about politics or economics. Vote for me to be your president. Now just think about that for a second. In any other walk of life, such a pitch would not get you very far. If, for example, uh, there was a Shakespearean production being put on at Newcastle University uh, of great significance for the university, and someone walked off the street and said, it's all right, I'll play Hamlet. And the director said, well, have you, what else have you done? Nothing. And I said, oh, brilliant, you're Hamlet. <laughs> that is what um, the pitch of some of these post-crash populists made. And in a way, it became more dangerous than that in uh, Britain with uh, the row over Brexit. Because when Boris Johnson was trying to force through his Brexit in that hung parliament when he was first prime minister, 
in December, uh, November, December 2019, before the election. He was quite explicit about the juxtaposition. It was Parliament versus the people. Now that um, is, when you think about it, and very few politics is so fast moving, these statements have not been fully explored. On one level, it is a ridiculous contortion because it's the people who elect the MPs to Parliament. Um, But it's also dangerous because if you decide that those you elect immediately in some weird journey to this point place in Westminster or Washington or wherever, um, you become against the people who put you there. And in that space, all kinds of strange figures can surface. Look at Farage, Nigel Farage, who has never actually been in the House of Commons and turns that to an advantage. Um, When he was at the peak of his powers, he used to chair a phone-in on LBC. And I used to listen, and it was very revealing. People used to phone him up and say things like this. This was a typical exchange. Um, This is almost verbatim. Uh, Hello, Nigel. It's Trevor here from East London. Hello, Trevor. What's your point? Nigel, I just want to say this country's in deep, deep trouble. There's only one person who could save us. Uh, Who's that, Trevor? You, Nigel. Oh, right. Well, I see see your point. That was about the hardest interrogation of Nigel Farage's position. But because he was for the people against Parliament, it had a certain potency. And in a way, the Trump pitch now, which seems objectively from a kind of distance absurd, um, that the elite stopped him from winning the last presidential election, which, of course, he won, is in that same area. The people against the elected elite of Washington, you know, Biden and all the others, um, it, 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 it has a kind of potency. To those who have decided, whoever we elect becomes in some weird way contaminated um, by democracy, in effect. And those you trust are people who have nothing to do with any of that. Now, one of Boris Johnson's uh, smart tricks was um, he was absolutely of that kind of elite. Uh, Eton, Oxford, um, uh, editing The Spectator, the House of Commons. Um, But somehow or other, because of the Brexit referendum, he was linked with the people against the elite. That referendum was a massive moment in the history of trust and politics. Because if you appeared to challenge the referendum in any way, you were inevitably against the people. And that, by the way, was Johnson's bond of trust. It's a complete myth that voters tolerated his mendacity, his infidelities. It wasn't about that. The bond was that he was delivering what they voted for, therefore he is worthy of trust. Even if he lied in the referendum about what Brexit would deliver, there was this bond because he was going to deliver it. 
and um, it is a really dangerous uh, combination. Uh, people versus the elected. And as I say, let's through all kinds of odd characters. Let's for a moment look at these odd characters. Because one of the interesting things about the populists who've surfaced in this era of, I would only put it this way, deeper mistrust with politicians, um, is that they are all afraid to face the consequences of their own actions. There is a really interesting pattern. They appear intimidating and mighty in the hold they have over a certain section of the electorate. But when they get close to prevailing they run a mile. And so, for example, Farage, the day after his triumphant win in the Brexit referendum, announced his resignation as leader of UKIP. Not for him, the hard grind of negotiating Brexit, of defining what it means, back to the LBC studio and callers telling him how wonderful he is. It's very interesting if you look at the Brexit secretaries of state, surely the ultimate dream. Uh, They've all resigned, one after another. The most recent, the unelected Lord Frosty Frost, who was Brexit secretary. Johnson put him there. Frosty, Frosty, all all yours, Frosty. Um, And Frosty took it as all his and The moment he got involved in negotiations over the unsolvable Northern Ireland Protocol, he resigned. David Davis resigned. He was the first Brexit secretary. Dominic Raab resigned. And it's very interesting. The leader of the AFD in Germany had a triumphant... This was a populist party of the right in Germany. Had a great victory four years ago in the parliamentary elections and got seats for the first time in the German parliament, she resigned the next day. Rather than continue facing the hard grind of legislation and policy making, which is part of politics. So although this era of recent years has produced figures who are quite dangerous in the way they project what democracy is all about... Uh, They are also uh, flaky. Um, To to balance it, I would say the same, for example, applies in a very... He was a very different character. But if you look at the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, another symptom of this era of volcanic, unpredictable change. I mean, his is the most remarkable story, really, in politics. Uh, This figure who had been a backbench MP from 1983, took no part in any front bench role in the new Labour era and all the rest of it, suddenly becomes leader of the opposition on a landslide victory in uh, 2015. And I've I've said in a book I've written about him and others, um, it really is the equivalent of watching someone playing tennis in a tennis court in a park and saying, oh, that was interesting, we'll put you on the centre court at Wimbledon for the final tomorrow. Because... 
you know, you, you, to be a leader, you have to have skills and experience in so many different ways. But such was the hunger for change in the Labour Party then, which was in itself a product of mistrust after Iraq and what was seen as the uh, betrayals of new Labour, uh, that they chose someone who, frankly, I think now is much more at ease uh, back uh, on his allotment in uh, near Islington, uh, where he is apparently again producing the most fantastic courgettes. Um, and actually, it was a very revealing moment in the 2017 general election, uh, the one that Theresa May called. And certainly, Theresa May, whatever you think of her, she's a curious figure in many ways, but actually quite an honourable person in this era of mistrust. Uh, but her, it was a disaster of an election for her. And it was very interesting. She came on. Uh, that, do, 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 have you ever seen the one show on BBC One? Some of you may have seen it. Um, she came on during the election campaign. And uh, she was so nervous. She brought Philip, her husband, on. And they were asking her the easiest questions going. And one of the questions was, who puts the rubbish out at, you know, in her house in number 10? And she looked as if she'd been asked to reveal the nuclear code. She looked terrified. <laughs> she couldn't answer the question. And um, the next day, Jeremy Corbyn uh, was the guest, the, the balance. Um, and it was the day the Daily Mail had published eight pages of uh, Corbyn, uh, the terrorist friend, Corbyn, the IRA supporter, all the rest of it. And on he came, Jeremy Corbyn. And everyone watching, I think, oh, we're here, this combination of Lenin, Stalin, Jerry Adams. Um, and he came on and he said to the presenter, oh, I've got two jars of my homemade rhubarb jam from my allotment. And the presenter, oh, thank you very much. The audience went wild. Um, the power of the allotment and old-fashioned communication. Which brings me on to another element of all of this. And... It's a complicated one again. Obviously, I mentioned there an orthodox, old-fashioned television programme, the one show, conventional chat show interview. But we all live now in the era of social media. And this, I think, has had an astonishing effect on politics and trust. But again, I think ambiguous. People often quote the Trump tweets as being a major ingredient in his successful presidential campaign. Although, remember, he didn't get as many votes as Hillary Clinton, but he did win that one. Um, and he tweeted all the time. Uh, and the tweets were comically preposterous and yet apparently quite effective. Social media inevitably heightens a sense of mistrust because it is so feverish. It's very hard for any politician to appear, to quote Theresa May in the 2017 election, strong and stable. Do you remember that was her pitch in Twitter? I'm strong and stable. Because everything, you know, you, you go on Twitter and you say, oh, there's someone who looks strong and stable. And then suddenly you read someone say, that person is certifiably insane and is going to destroy everything. Oh, Jesus, you can't be strong and stable. Everything's, and of course, the subjects of the criticism read them and get more and more worked up. But I kind of wonder about this. There's no doubt at all, social media has 
heightened a sense of frenzy in uh, elected politics. But that frenzy, frankly, has always been there. It just means it's more constant, that rhythm of hysteria. Um, When I look back at some of the British leaders I've studied in the past, people, you're all far too young to remember him, but there was a Labour Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, who, um, you know, Martin Martin and I were talking about that era, you know, he was uh, deeply paranoid about other colleagues, spies, probably justifiably eavesdropping on what he was up to. Um, And that was in the era of about six newspapers, three channels. So I wonder whether the impact of social media has been somewhat exaggerated. But what is unquestionably the case, and this applies across Europe, America and Britain, is the failure of those mainstream parties that I began my talk referring to in adapting to these dramatically changed circumstances. So we do live in this globalised economy that has advantages and terrible uh, challenges as well. That brilliant phrase coined by, I think it was, Dominic Cummings in the Brexit campaign, uh, the left behind. Actually, it's got nothing to do with the European Union, but it has a hell of a lot to do with globalisation and this sense of hopelessness and helplessness in the face of impossible torrents. And that was the way Tony Blair framed it originally. There was a famous party conference speech he made where he said, globalisation is happening as night follows day, as winter follows autumn, and you just better adapt. And that was kind of it. A sense of terrible, hopeless inevitability, which these non-politicians challenged with an assertive flourish that was understandably appealing. We'll build a wall between Mexico and the United States. We'll protect borders, and yet we will still be able to trade openly, all the kind of things that arose. And mainstream parties have been very slow to adapt. And you can see them trying to do so, um, and yet failing. So in America, the Republicans are still split between the sort of Trumpian, make America great again, nationalism, the kind of Reaganite right, the kind of, the Republicans have a kind of Thatcherite, balance your books right, uh, right. None of them really have worked out what instruments of intervention are available to say, well, yeah, it, it, it does happen like night follows day, but we can help you. And what's been interesting about the pandemic Uh, and some of the things that have happened since the pandemic, is you can see mainstream politicians finally having to use levers that they've been reluctant to pull in the past. Uh, Rishi Sunak, a self-declared fiscal conservative, spending a fortune on furlough. Uh, In other words, they didn't just say and say, look, the pandemic is happening like night follows day, get on with it. They intervene like nothing else. Boris Johnson, um, when he, in his own confused way, was trying to move his party on from a kind of 
rep, kind of homage, never-ending homage to Thatcherism, which was absolutely a product of the late 70s and early 80s. He used to go around sometimes saying, call me a Rooseveltian. Now, what he was doing is saying there, there is a virtue sometimes in public spending. Um, now, admittedly, with him, it was never followed through properly and all the rest of it, but it was there. And same with Theresa May, who said... Um, it's time for us to talk about the good that government can do. I think this was all in response to the challenge of globalisation that had been leapt on by these uh, populist uh, figures. And and so you can see the kind of struggle. You can see it now with Sunak. It's so interesting that um, he wants to balance the books, but... He can't really find ways of cutting public spending in this kind of desperately dark era. Um, that, that, that party is kind of moving away from globalisation being something that is just going to happen without anything else. But they're not there yet. And so you can see kind of debates. Uh, Biden was actually quite brave in America in pledging to spend a tonne of money on what I think he called his Green Deal or Green uh, revolution, but it is using levers in ways that voters can relate to. And you can see the kind of mainstream parties trying to catch up. And therefore, a new pattern is developing of quite sort of dull, expedient people. I'm not saying this is a good or a bad thing, you know, winning in America, Germany, although Merkel wasn't a bundle of laughs, actually, when I think about it. Um, and she, by the way, highlighted one of the great dilemmas, and I'll end on that, and then we can please ask me anything about anything, um, uh, on, on trust in the era of globalisation. When loads of refugees famously fled Syria, uh, Merkel was up for taking many in, and she assumed uh, that other EU members would be equally up for it and it would be coordinated. Um, and that these refugees would not just be in Germany, but they would be all over the place. And to her bewilderment, and it caused a huge crisis for her, uh, they weren't. Because in Austria, the government there said, bloody hell, if we take these refugees, uh, the right that are already breathing down our necks are going to get in. And by the way, they did uh, in a presidential election in Austria around this time. Sweden, then still a left-of-centre coalition. We're not going to take them. All hell will break loose. Britain, Cameron and George Osborne didn't want to go near it. And there you have the ultimate dilemma in the era of globalisation, where uh, politicians do two things. They first of all say with great solemnity how terrible it is what's happening in Syria, Ukraine, uh, we will, of course, do all we can to help those fleeing these terrible conditions. Afghanistan's another one. And then the moment the issue of all these people coming here and the borders not being protected goes to the top of the agenda, they have to run a mile. And there is, again, a breakdown of trust on both sides. Uh, those who think it's a good thing in this era of endless global movement of people uh, that countries take them, they feel betrayed because in the end the countries don't. And those who think the borders should be shut as the main priority of any government feels let down because, you know, God, you know, there were figures 
uh, quite ironic figures published, I think, yesterday, that more people have come in post-Brexit than before here, where the borders was meant to be an element of taking back control. And so you can see how this issue of trust becomes so feverish and highly charged. But I'll end on this. If voters, all of us lot, especially the media that screams noisily on all issues, do not acknowledge the complex dilemmas facing uh, leaders, we will get into much, much deeper difficulty. Um, You know, Starmer now, he believes privately in the advantages of going into Europe. Is he lying when he pretends not to anymore? Or is he doing what he has to do in order to regain so-called red wall voters? Um, Is Sunak, what's he going to do to win the next election? He wants to see the economy growing. One way you could see the economy growing is to have a closer relationship with the single market, as Jeremy Hunt briefed the Sunday Times a couple of Sundays ago. But then your party implodes. And um, if your party implodes and threatens to overturn you and bring back Boris Johnson, who apparently is going around saying, I'm the only former and future prime minister. (laughs) Um, What do you do? And in navigating these dilemmas you are inevitably going to alienate many people and reinforce a breakdown of trust. But actually, what you're trying to do is resolve dilemmas that are almost impossible to resolve. I remember, I'll end with this, then we can have a conversation. Seen Blair, very early, I used to invite the uh, us lot, columnists and people in all the time when he was prime minister. I remember seeing him, he was about 40 points ahead in the polls uh, early on after that 97 election where he had this never-ending honeymoon which incidentally broke over the issue of trust and whether he lied about Iraq and all the rest of it. Um, Anyway, he was miles ahead in the polls and uh, I I went into the the office where he worked in number 10 and said, sit down, come in, do come in. I said, oh God, you look quite tired. He said, yeah, his job's pretty knackering actually. And he said, it's the decisions. He said, every decision, you know, you've got to make a lot of decisions. And the question really is, do you slash your wrist or cut your throat? And that's what you've got to decide to do. And those are often the dilemmas faced by politicians. And in a way, I think we certainly in the media and elsewhere have a responsibility to explore the dilemmas as well as screaming betrayal and lies and all the stuff which inevitably accompany some of these people as they navigate the world in the globalised era. Thank you very much for listening. Let's have a wider conversation. Thank you. So there we go. That was the uh, talk I gave at Newcastle University on this theme of trust. And then we did have a great conversation. And uh, But as I say, I kind of didn't quite get the questions with my uh, this great mic that the brilliant uh, Podmasters has uh, 
provided me with. Um, so, yeah, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. So I look forward to hearing your reflections on this issue of trust. It will come up all the time in the coming year, uh, not only, of course, in British politics, but United States and across anywhere in the democratic world. Um, so, yeah, well, look, we're approaching New Year now, aren't we? Some of you maybe are listening to this in 2023. Um, so I just want to do one thing which I'm going to do uh, weekly, which is to sort of give name checks to those of you who kindly subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. And we've got a great new series of bonus podcasts coming up in 2023 on the theme of troublemakers in uh, British politics, uh, which is I'm really looking forward to. Um, So uh, do subscribe. And for those of you who do already subscribe. Thank you so much for doing so in 2023. Makes it possible for me to be under the auspices of the fantastic Podmasters. I want to thank all of them uh, for getting the podcast out uh, every week in their glorious studios, and they've all been fantastic to work with. One of the great things I've done this year is to join the great podmasters anyway they organize patreon for me and here are some of those of you who subscribe i just want to give you a name check and thank you all mark parker chris williams adrian anita simmons uh Frazy may helen gordon uh jordan samuel fleming daniel goodley hillary friend uh colin greenwood that's fantastic that you all do and uh and there's more john park james bustin uh, thank you all very much indeed for uh, subscribing. Much appreciated. And uh, I want to thank all of you for listening, for your brilliant questions, uh, which kind of shape the podcast and our rock and roll politics uh, cooperative. And hopefully our cooperative will expand. There will be new things happening. Uh, and of course, all the live shows in 2023. We've got to keep together and get together to make sense of what's going to be a wild year, the last full 12 months uh, before uh, a general election year. It's always a hugely important defining year because by the time you get to the election year, things are pretty settled, actually. So, yeah, have a wonderful new year. See you again very shortly where we will gather to make sense of it all. Thank you. Bye.